If you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Matthew 28. This is after Jesus' death, his resurrection, and he's about to ascend. And in Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18, we see that Jesus says this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so what we see here is Jesus telling us, he's given us this job, this task, to go and make disciples of whom? Yeah, all nations. We're to go and share the love of Jesus with all people. And so, sometimes we, when we talk about discipleship, we sometimes narrow that down into this into these few verses, the Great Commission. And that's good. I think that this is a healthy summary of discipleship. But what we cannot forget about discipleship is this. Jesus just spent the last three years with these men. And when he's giving them this commission, he's not telling them to do something that he hasn't prepared them to do. He has spent three years loving people who no one else would love, serving people who no one else would serve, Forgiving them when they did sinful or ignorant things. He was there to love them and to help them grow and to see them mature. And even to the end, Judas was betraying him. Peter was denying him. And he was there to forgive Peter, as we see at the end of of the Gospel of John. He was there to tell Peter, (laughs) feed my sheep. Go make disciples. He's there to tell all the disciples, to, to all his uh, followers, these people that he's been pouring his life into, to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So go tell people about Jesus. See people get saved. Go make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so there's a lot to discipleship. And so because there's a lot to discipleship, sometimes we look at discipleship and we say, that's too complicated, I can't do that. Or we put discipleship in a box and we say, we package it and we say, this is discipleship. And we, we say discipleship is when, um, how many of you ever did, I just went blank on what it was even called, uh, Sunday night training, what was that called? Yeah, discipleship training, yeah. How many of y'all did that back in the day? Okay? So discipleship training is a good thing, right? But does it encompass all of what discipleship is? No, it's just, it's just a great way to do discipleship, but it's just a part of what discipleship is. Okay, Sunday school. We, we, most of us have been to Sunday school. Is, is that the totality of discipleship? No. Now, if it's done right, it gets really, really close. But it's... A method. It's a tool. But there's one way of discipleship that is all-encompassing. And what that is, is it's, it's not tied to a program. It's not tied to a church. It's tied to Jesus. And it's the way he lived his life. It's the way he walked with those men and those women. It's the way that he cried. He mourned for them. 
He cried over Jerusalem. He prayed over Jerusalem. He was there for the disciples. And he invested his life into them. And he, was, he ate with them. And when the tax collectors and the sinners, in order for them to become disciples, they had to get saved, right? Well, most of the religious leaders would just point fingers at those people and judge those people and not even give those people a chance. And Jesus was eating with those people. Those were his friends. And he was not just saying, well, you just keep sinning, that's okay. He, he was eating with them and loving them and showing them compassion and also telling them truth. Go and sin no more. And so um, the type of discipleship that we're talking about tonight is discipleship in the manner that Jesus did it. And, and this is very broad, but we will also then, in the midst of talking about discipleship in this relational way, We'll also talk about some of these boxes that do help us to organize some of the things that we're doing and to be able to present it to others and teach others how to do that, something similar, so that it's um, reproducible. And so, Michael, I'm going to ask you if you would to come up. Um, When I was 17, uh, I became a Christian. I had gone to church some when I was a child, uh, sermons from the pastor and the youth pastor, and just the relationship that Brandon Massey, my youth minister, had with me um, God used that to, to bring me to the Lord. And then Brandon poured into my life. And then when I went to college, a few months later, I met a man named Jeff Noble. And eventually Jeff asked me, he said, would you like to uh, know what discipleship is? And I was like, yeah, sure. And he said, okay, well, come meet with me uh, for one hour every week, and we'll discuss this study that I'm going to give you. And then we'll also... Uh, I'll teach you in other ways what discipleship is. So that sounded great. So I came, and a few weeks in, Jeff said, you know, are you enjoying this? And I said, absolutely. He said, okay, good. He said, "Um, you have two weeks to find someone to lead through what I'm leading you through. And you're four weeks ahead of them. You already know. uh, You can already teach them four weeks worth of stuff, even if that's all you know. And so I want you to find someone. And I thought, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pray about it. So a couple of weeks later, Jeff said, who have you chosen? You know, who have you asked? Who are you going to lead? And I said, well, I, I, I'm not sure yet. And he said, okay, well, I love you, but I'm not going to continue to pour into you if it's just going to stop with you. I expect you to pour it into others. So we're going to stop until you find someone to lead. So I thought, oh, I guess I ought to get serious about this. And so I prayed about it. And um, I can remember I was sitting on the couch inside the Baptist Collegiate Ministry at the University of Arkansas Monticello, and I was looking out at the campus. It was just this big, these glass panes, so it was all open. You could see the campus. And uh, I was praying, and I was asking God, God, please put someone on my heart. Who should I lead through this? And uh, I just kept thinking about Michael. And I didn't think he would say yes, and and I'll get to a little bit of why, but I'm going to let Michael um, share his story. So uh, I got saved when I was 11, as I told you this morning, and uh, had a really awesome childhood as far as uh, good parents, good mother and stepfather, uh, and uh, my grandparents were always uh, trying to point me to Jesus. Uh, but like I told you, when I was 16, my father passed away from pancreatic cancer, and that really uh, changed the way my life was going. I decided to go down some bad roads uh, past that and really live for myself. So I knew I was a Christian. And I was convicted of my sin, but I had no church family, and I had no one to teach me the word, so I was able to uh, push away the conviction of the Holy Spirit and uh, and just uh, go down bad roads. Uh, 
uh, those bad roads led me to UAM, the University of Arkansas at Monticello. And uh, uh, long story short, I ended up living with Philip. I uh, started living with Philip because of his brother. His brother went to UAM as well. And uh, I needed a place to stay. And he said, hey, come stay in our trailer. I don't know if he ever approved that with Philip or not. But uh, he said, come stay in our trailer. And a week turned into a month and turned into, well, Michael lives with us now. So that was nice. Uh, so, again, Philip and I were always very uh, nice to each other. We considered each other friends, but just not more past, good morning, how are you? That was pretty much our friendship. Uh, so when we got to college, Philip took his Christianity to another level. And I remember making fun of him with his brother, saying, you know, man, Philip was serious when he was in high school, but now he's reading his Bible all the time and he's going to that BSU. What's that about? You know, they, they have free lunch on Wednesdays, but what else do they do? That's just, that's a strange place. Uh, and, uh, and we didn't understand. We didn't, we didn't understand why Philip was making these choices in his life. Uh, and sure enough, I guess uh, his sophomore year, my freshman year, uh, he came to me one day. And uh, I thought he wanted to talk about basketball because it was March, and it was March Madness time. And I was like, good, I can talk about basketball with Philip. It'll be easy. Uh, and he said, I want you to do a Bible study with me. And I was thrown off guard uh, because I'd never done Bible study in my entire life. Again, I knew I was saved, but I'd never studied the Word. Uh, my di- Bible was about as dusty as it could be. And uh, my first thought was, no, no chance. I'm too busy doing other things. I have things I want to live for. And I'll get to that later when I turn 50 or whenever people start living for Christ. Uh, and But I never said all this. All I said was, uh, all right. And fully expecting nothing to come of it, fully expecting uh, not to ever meet with him uh, because it just wasn't my thing. I didn't want to study the Word. Uh, in part because I figured if I studied the Word, I'd probably have to you know do something about living for Jesus. Uh, but I, I was totally against it. Uh, I didn't pray about it at all. I didn't understand a lot about prayer back then. And uh, and even up until our first meeting, uh, I, I thought it would never pan out. I thought Philip would, would realize that I was the wrong guy, that there were many better people to take through a Bible study program and not me. The first verse we ever went over is in Philippians 3. Uh, it's 3.10. I'm sure Philip's gone over this many times with you since you've been through Philippians. Uh 3.10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And the first time Philip read that, you know how Philip gets really excited about the Bible? He was the same way 15 years ago. He's like, don't you see? You can, you can know him and the power of his resurrection. And I didn't roll my eyes to his face. But I remember thinking, well, that's nice. That's nice that you want to know Jesus that way. But I'm doing my thing over here. But sure enough, uh, we kept meeting. For whatever reason, uh, the Lord had a plan. And uh, as the Word often does, the Word started penetrating my heart and started showing me my sin and that if I was going to claim the name of Jesus, if I was going to be a Christian, then I needed to make major changes in my life to turn away from a lot of sin and to start studying the Word. And uh, and that's when it all started, right there in the BCM uh, library all those years ago. Uh, I was not a church member. I didn't have a church home. That came later. Uh, if Philip would have waited for me to come to church, I might have never been discipled. Uh, it was college, so not a lot of churches were reaching out to young people to disciple them. Uh, so I could have easily floated through my life uh, without ever learning the Word and having it change my life. Uh, to the point where uh, one of the reasons that I think Philip and I are so connected is because the Word really did change our life. We can, we can both see 
that we were going this way, and the word completely turned us around and pointed us to Christ to the point that now that we're at 35 and 36, uh, that we can both say we want to know Christ and we want to know the power of resurrection, and we strive for that daily. Uh, but it was very, very different 15 years ago. But it all started, and I tell everyone I disciple this, uh, my Sunday school, bless their heart, they hear more about Philip than they do about uh, me sometimes, to the point that there's a great uh, Christian man in my Sunday school named uh, Mr. Ed Watts. And last Sunday he said, hey, Philip, come here, I want to tell you something. There's not a man named Philip in our church. We have a 700-member church. There's not one Philip I know of. I said, Mr. Ed, you know my name's Michael. He said, yeah, but you talk about Philip so much. Uh, but we have this bond because the word changed our life and we've grown in Christ together. I was a late start. Philip had a really good jump on me, uh, but, uh, we've worked together and, uh, now we strive for the same things, which is to be Christ-like and to make disciples. So, so when we, um, I can remember those first few meetings. I, I, I can think about being in the library and it's like it was yesterday and I remember us going through this uh, study together, but mainly scripture, and just learning how to pray, learning how to meditate on God's word, um, which, you know, Eastern meditation, you, you empty your mind. You know, you focus and, on emptying your mind. But Christian meditation, you focus and fill your mind with the truth of God's word, and you meditate, you focus on something, on Jesus. Not on nothing, but on something, and that something being Jesus. And so... I can remember us learning these things and practicing these things together and, and praying together. And um, I remember when I was 17, I, I was reading the Bible for the first time, and I got to David and Jonathan. And I remember being very uncomfortable reading about the friendship that David and Jonathan had because um, growing up in southeast Arkansas, uh, men were not supposed to feel that much love and friendship. And it was a healthy, godly friendship, um, but it still made me uncomfortable. And, you know, I didn't know that all these years later, Rose would call Michael my other spouse. But um, anyway, the time we spent together really did create uh, just this friendship. That's It's just more than what you think about when you think of a friendship. It's just a love for each other. Uh, I know that, um, you know, Rose is my best friend. And she's there for me. She's always there for me. I know I can talk to her about anything. Um. But there is something amazing about knowing that I have a man that I can go to also, um, that I can talk to about struggles in life, about frustrations in life. And Rose is always there. She's always going to tell me what I want to hear and encourage me most of the time, you know. And as we're getting older, she's starting to tell me more truth, uh, not just encouraging words. But I remember I could call Michael, and and he would just say, uh, stop being dumb or something like that and speak some truth into my life that I needed to hear. But going back to that uh, time in our lives, uh, I want us to talk about some of the things uh, that encompassed us meeting together. We met together and for an hour a week, but was that all the time we spent together? Uh, yeah, we uh, we met together for an hour a week, and in that time, like you said, it was pretty much uh, saturated with the Word, uh, uh, but soon after that, we would spend more time together, and as I grew in Christ... I wanted to be around Philip more because I wanted to share with him what I was learning. But then we just started living life together. We started growing up together. We were young and dumb in a lot of different ways. Still are sometimes. Uh, but uh, we we began living life together. So the hour of day was our Bible study time, and that was awesome. But then we would play basketball together, or we would 
he convinced me that going to the BSU was a good thing. So we would come to the BSU and play games there or whatever. Uh, and then uh, by this time, we had actually uh, not uh, stopped living together. Uh, because when Philip moved out, like I said, uh, he moved out before he started discipling me because his brother and I were into some pretty rough stuff. His brother uh, was were, uh, had certain sins that he was dealing with, and I personally struggled badly with lust. And Philip knows this. Uh, he doesn't know that I know, but uh, he would. He told people that between his brother's struggles and my struggles, he couldn't be in the house anymore. That it was very difficult for him to live around that much sin, and I certainly understand that now. But after he started discipling me, uh, I moved back to Lake Village, which was 45 minutes away from Monticello, and I commuted to school. But the bond that we had had grew so much that we would make time for each other, whether it was lunch or finding uh, him come to my house and spending the night, or just uh, as we grew in Christ, we grew together and we started experiencing things together. Uh, so it, it very quickly moved outside of that hour. We still love the hour, and we still cherish the hour, but uh, it very quickly grew into something where uh, we were we were spending a lot more time together than that. So I can remember um, a few weeks into our Bible study, knowing I got to talk to Michael about all this sin in his life. Meeting together and studying God's Word together and watching Michael get excited about the Bible, that was really fun. Talking to someone about their sin, not so much fun it's, it's just not it's hard and i can remember being so nervous like how many of you have ever been so nervous that your stomach hurt that it was actually painful and and you know i was already a nervous person i had stomach ulcers as a kid and so um i just remember being so nervous about talking to michael about this and you know i don't know if you remember this but um we'll, we'll before I say that, why don't you share, do you remember what was going through your head in, in that moment, or do you even remember that? I'm not sure what specifically you're talking about. Well, I can remember um, the first sin I talked to Michael about. Uh, he said, you know what? My stepdad was just talking to me about this the other day. And I just remember thinking, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> like, Okay, God's already at work, you know, and that's what I found over and over. And Michael's the first person I ever led to discipleship in this one-on-one manner, but especially in this all-encompassing living life together manner. And so I can just remember talking to him about sin, and God had already prepared his heart to hear it. And it it started this this battle that Michael wanted to live for Jesus. He wanted to live for God. And it was just so amazing to see the word changing him so much. Every It really did feel like during that season that every week we would come back together and God had just done these crazy things to mature and to grow him. And so uh, anything else you want to add about that season? Yeah. Uh, uh, again, my sin, uh, to not get too deep, but my sin was pornography. And it's a, it's a battle I fight to this day. Uh, but it had gotten to a, a really uh, deadly, as sin produces death, level. And Philip didn't even know the extent of it. He just wanted to have this conversation with me because a lot of our friends struggle with that. Uh, and so when he brought it up, uh, it was it was scary for me too because I thought our friendship would be over when I confessed to him that I struggle with these things. Uh, so even to this day, when I counsel men who are struggling with that particular sin, and there are a lot, and that's a that's a discussion for another time. Uh, but even today, I go back to Philip, 
and I remember how loving he was and how I can see his expression right now. It didn't change when I confessed to him. It wasn't a look of shock. It certainly wasn't a how dare you. It was, okay, this is sin. Let's repent. Let's get. Let's fight it. Let's do what we can. What can I do to help you? And that was just a, another one of those keystone moments where I knew that Philip would love me no matter what. And that pointed me straight to Christ who loves me uh, in spite of my sin and certainly died for my sin. Uh, but I remember that specifically because Philip thought that was a moment. And we learned all this years later. It's funny how we went through all this and like maybe five years later we felt comfortable just telling each other what was running through our heads. Like how I didn't really want to hang out with him. Uh, but... Uh, uh, it, it, it was amazing to me that he was scared because I was the one that was had the, the struggle with the sin at that time and how we became even more open with each other about our sin. So a part of us growing up together was learning that it was okay to talk about sin. And it was certainly okay to help each other fight, to hold each other accountable, and to ask each other the hard questions. And that's a hard relationship to find uh, sometimes in the Christian world. Uh, praise God that we have wives now that we can discuss this with. But it started with us. And I, I, I don't feel it's a stretch to say that one of our expectations going into marriage was to be able to talk to our wives about everything because that's what we came up doing. We knew that in order to fight sin, you had to be honest about it. And you had to be willing to open up to your Christian brothers and sisters about it. And it started right there with Philip in a very uncomfortable conversation uh, that that turned out to produce a lot of fruit in our lives. But again, even to this day, uh, I remember that. And I've had men come to me that I've worked with uh, on these things. And they say, you know, I didn't know how to tell you, and I was scared you would be upset, or I was scared you wouldn't want to talk to me. And I'll say, look, first time I ever talked about it, he didn't run away. He loved me, and but he expected me to fight. So there was a lot there uh, in those first meetings. So... Um... I think accountability is something that we don't have a lot of in the church anymore. And we're private people. We don't want people knowing our business. And uh, that's just not the Bible. We're to live life together. You know, there's all these verses in Scripture, be kind to one another, uh, forgive one another, all these one another, one another, one another. Well, you can't one another if you don't have somebody you're in relationship with. And so um, what I was doing toward Michael that he just described was what was done toward me from Brandon and Jeff as they were mentoring me. It didn't start with Brandon and Jeff. It went back and it went back, and it can be traced back to Jesus when he told them, go and make disciples. And so, um, but one thing I will say is, is that if you want this sort of relationship, then you have to be ready and willing to forgive anything. And at that point, I probably was surprised by what Michael was telling me, but just keeping a poker face, you know. But at this point, I'm not surprised anymore. I don't I don't know the last time I was surprised by sin I heard because we all have sin. Are you telling we, them that I still sin? <laughs> Believe it or not. Oh, okay. Believe it or not. I didn't know we were going to confess. Yeah. No, I was actually talking about um, anyone coming to me and, and talking about sin. Uh, it's just we all sin, so it's, it's not surprising. I lead a, a men's Bible study that I started in uh, East Texas on Monday nights, and we have a really good group of very diverse ages, uh, but we all come together and study. Our first book we did was First Samuel, and that was the first time I ever made them uncomfortable when we got to David and Jonathan and said, look, you don't know Philip, but he's David and I'm Jonathan, and we love each other like brothers. And they're like, okay, that's nice. Why do you keep talking about this guy? Uh, 
So, and then some of my friends I've made in Texas were kind of sitting in the corner like, gosh, I guess I'll never be Jonathan to you. And I said, well, I'm sorry, you won't. That's just the way it is. Uh, but uh, <laughs> they're working on it, though. They're trying hard. But uh, but we have a, a, a small group of men, and it's only men, and we go through a book of the Bible each semester. Uh, last semester, we went through Acts. And uh, in that, I remember specifically one first time we met, I passed out a questionnaire. And I asked a question that I had been asked in a book I was reading about elders. Uh, and it said, if you knew this sin about me, you wouldn't want me in your class. So I gave that to the men, and I, I left it blank. I said, if I knew this about you, if I knew this sin, I would kick you right out of my class. And it's an uncomfortable question, and I, I made them write it down. And uh, and then I told them, I said, look, it doesn't matter what you wrote. It doesn't. Uh, I, I even said, a little jokingly, I said, if you wrote, I just murdered someone, we might have to talk to someone, but I still want you in my class. Uh, but the point was, and... Uh, the point was that I wanted them there no matter what. No sin that they're struggling with would make me not want to teach them the Bible. I want to love them, and I want them to grow in Christ. But I want you to understand something, Mansfield, First Baptist. This was very shocking to most of those men, and that upset me a little bit. It upset me that they had been living and going to church for quite a while, and they had never gotten to the point where they understood grace and expected their Christian leaders to forgive them as Christ forgave. They were still at the point where they thought, if I tell him this, he won't want me around anymore. And that's a lie. That's a lie that sin produces that tells you, if they find this out, they won't want me here. Christians sin, they repent, they get back in the fight. That's what we do together. That's what the Holy Spirit produces. So I can, with 100% assurance, tell you that he's telling the truth. He might want to counsel you. He might want to uh, meet with you one-on-one or something. But I can't think of anything that you can tell Philip where he'll say, I don't want to be your pastor. Just like I've had men tell me various things and nothing. I've never had the thought, well, I don't, I don't want this guy around. It just makes me want to love them more and want to help them fight so I can see those victories in their lives that only Christ can produce where they can come to me and say, Michael, do you remember what I was struggling with? I've had a great week where I didn't struggle with anger or I didn't struggle with pride. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a good thing to have that relationship with people. Yeah, last thing I'll say, and then I want to rewind a little bit, um, is you remember in the Bible where the man comes to pray, and he's got it all together, right? He's and he's like, uh, God, thank you for allowing me to be so perfect. And he might he doesn't say that, but anyway, he says, Thank you that I'm not a sinner like that guy. Yeah, but the other guy says, Have mercy on me, O God, for I'm a sinner. And then. The question is, which one of those man, men was right in God's eyes? And it's the one who admitted that he was a sinner and asked for forgiveness. And let's just be clear, we're all that guy. Whether we're confessing it or not, that's the other story. And we all, and, and if we think we don't have sins, if we think that we don't have room to grow in our walk with Christ, then there's something really wrong. And here's the thing. Spouses, best friends... Discipleship creates an environment where you can't lie to yourself because there's someone who loves you enough to call you out on it. Uh, talk, let's go back to college and talk about who's the first person that you led through discipleship. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, so, Philip, uh, you'll learn this if you haven't learned it in six months, is very good at putting you in spots you don't want to be in. He'll tell you things like, okay, you got to do this. I'm going to go here and do this. 
And you're like, wait, you do this, and I'll stand here and do nothing. Uh, one of the first times I remember that, we were at BSU lunch. Yes, I started going to BSU lunch. And Philip saw a group of people across the way, and he said, we need to invite them to the lunch. Because if we invite them to lunch, they'll hear the gospel, and maybe we can teach, teach them Bible study. And uh, I thought, well, I don't invite people to church. <laughs> That's your thing, and clearly you're good at that. And he's like, come on, go with me. And I was like, all right. And so I remember being terrified, terrified, literally terrified as Philip stood about here inviting a group of people that I didn't know to come to Bible study and lunch. And I said nothing. And then I, walking back, I thought, well, I did a pretty good job inviting those people. I don't know if you saw me or not, Philip, but I smiled at him. Uh, uh, it's funny how that's changed over the years. Uh, but uh, point is that Philip had the same expectations of me that Jeff and Brandon have of him. See, I don't know Jeff and Brandon that well, but when I tell my story of discipleship, when I'm trying to tell men that they need to be disciple makers, that it's not just up to me, I tell them about Brandon Massey and Jeff Noble because they poured into Philip, and Philip's the one who poured into me. So these men, I don't call them, I don't have their phone numbers, we don't really know each other, but I do know that they poured into Philip, and Philip poured into me, and he had that same expectation for me. So very early on, Philip said, you need to start thinking about someone you can teach what you're learning to. And my route was a little different. So like I said, I was very nervous around people I didn't know. So I went to my mother. Uh, my mother was raised uh, Latin Catholic. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's a service all in Latin. The only problem is most people don't speak Latin. So mom uh, knew a little about Christ, but she had never studied her Bible. She had never been encouraged to study her Bible. And I knew this. And as I was learning, I wanted her to learn with me. And the great thing about my mom is she's always willing to learn. And uh, so I took her through the same exact program we went through. And uh, I'm proud to say that my mom was my first disciple, that I poured into her, and that mom at 72 is still learning the Bible, uh, serving at my church right now. She was baptized last Christmas uh, because she felt convicted that she had never been baptized uh, since she was a baby. Uh, she joined the church. It's the first church she's ever been a member of. Uh, she serves in many different areas, and she's very faithful to my Sunday school class. That's the only thing I can't pry her away from. If I change Sunday school classes, she goes with me. But uh, but mom was first, and then my sister was second. Uh, my sister was the same background, and uh, the more I got uh, rolling teaching Sunday school and other things, I saw that I wanted my family with me. And after mom changed and people saw the change in her life, uh, they began wondering, and the, the quote that I didn't like was, well, Michael's found religion, and he's taking it serious. Now, I hadn't found religion. Christ had shown me his word and how it transforms people. Uh, and so I, I discipled my sister, and uh, she joined uh, the church. And, uh, and then years went by, and I, I began discipling more like Philip, and outside my family, outside my comfort zone, where when I came in contact with people, I could invite them and want to show them the word. But it all started with mom. And the point I want to make with that, I don't know what point Philip wants to make with it, but is that... Uh, it has to start somewhere. You have to start teaching the Bible. And it might be someone you're more comfortable with, or it might be difficult. It's very difficult for Philip to disciple me. It was very easy for me to disciple my mother because she loves me and she was willing to be discipled. But now, as we've grown, we see that for us, discipleship starts at the home. Allison, my wife, and I are a team, and our number one goal in discipleship is our children. Right now, it's Katie. Wyatt's asleep. He didn't get a nap. I guess I'm not exciting him. Charles and Samuel, uh, they're my number one disciples. They're my number one. And I was convicted about uh, over this 
a while back, and uh, we do family time five nights a week where we go through a book of the Bible and we ask questions and we have expectations for our children. Uh, there's a lot more discipleship in my life, but now it starts with my children. Uh, for you, it might start with your spouse, that you go through the Bible together and learn together. Or it might start with your children or your grandchildren. You know, now that we can see broad picture, we can see that my real first discipler was my granny. It was a little bit, and it was when I wasn't really paying attention, but it was her that told me I needed Jesus for salvation. That's where it started. So my point is, uh, remember how we talked about excuses this morning? If you tell me, Michael, I'm not good at talking to strangers about the Bible, well, then find someone that's not a stranger and start talking to them about the Bible. And then you'd be surprised who God has you talk to about the Bible. Um, talk about the men's group in your Sunday school class. And just, I know all these are avenues of you teaching the Word and, mm-hmm. and pulpit supply that you've done, things like that. But when you meet people in those situations, when they are become a part of your group, what kind of a relationship do you have in that setting, since that's a larger setting than one-on-one? Uh-huh. Uh, I, I still do one-on-one. I'm, I'm doing one-on-one discipleship with two men. Uh, for the small group setting that I have with the men on Monday night, uh, we get together for an hour, and we study the Bible hard. They, they put up with me, and I'm a lot more fired up than I was with you this morning. I want to be calm. I didn't want you to ask Philip why he brought me here. But uh, I, I really hammer them and ask tough questions and have very high expectations for them. I expect them to pray with their wives. I expect them to, to teach their children what I teach them. Uh, and uh, that's for an hour. But after that, uh, it, it goes on further. We usually meet for an hour after that just talking about life, what's going on with their jobs. Uh, we might play games. Uh, then uh, I try my best to have them over to my house. Uh, my wife, again, is very gracious to be ready to have hospitality for these men and their wives uh, to, to, again, when they come to my house, it's more of a just I want them to know I love them and I care about them and I don't always want to throw a Bible at them. Uh, but uh, uh, we live, again, I know it seems like we're saying that a lot, but we live life together. I call them, I text them. They call me and text me when they have troubles or when they've had a good day or when they've had a bad day or when they have something come up. I had five or six of them text me today and tell me they were praying for me preaching because I told them I was nervous to preach at Phillips Church. And uh, to be honest with you, I expected them to do that. Uh, I, I know they care about me, and I know they want to know what's going on in my life just like I do theirs. But the point is is that I make effort to be a part of their lives, to be in their lives, and they make an effort uh, with me most of the time. Uh, it's not always easy. Uh, it's not always uh, – it doesn't give me all the rest I want. There are some nights where I'm tired or the kids need something, and I attend to them first, but – uh, you have to put the effort in if you're going to, to be a part of this discipleship-making process. And for me, that means having these men as my friends. Now, we joke about them not being the number one best friend, but they are. They're, they're my close, close friends, and I, I do what I can to, to love them and, uh, and uh, just be, be their Christian brother. Again, it's not easy, but I do it, and the Lord produces fruit from that because, as Philip said, Jesus didn't only meet people in church. He went to the synagogue a lot, and I could show you a lot of places where he went to the synagogue, but I can also show you where he ate with people, even at people's houses where you would look at them and say, should he be at that guy's house? I don't know if he should. Does he not know that guy? Have you heard about that guy? He's at that guy's house. Uh, He went there to their houses. He ate with them uh, wherever. Uh, He taught them when he could. It was this idea that he was totally invested into what he was doing with those guys. And that's our model, so that's what we do. 
So don't be surprised when Philip asks you over for a meal. Or if you are making disciples, if that's something that will come up with you when you say, I need to talk to this guy more than just an hour a week. I need to know more about him. I need to ask him how they did on Friday, not just how they did on Sunday. So, The, the thing I'll say, it, the last thing I want to say before I give you an opportunity to say anything you want to close with, is that um, this is not our opinions of what is good. This is what the Bible says Jesus did. And then he turned around and he told his disciples... Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And they knew how to do it because he had been doing it with them for three years. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And the way they were able to teach them to observe those things is because they observed him doing it. And then they were going to turn around and do it and teach others to do it. And it continues on. And so, any closing thoughts? Yeah, uh, I just want to thank you guys for having me uh, today. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I won't lie to you. I was here to inspect you. Uh, Philip doesn't know this. But uh, as I love him like a brother, I want to know how people are going to treat him. And uh, and so I was watching very closely uh, this morning. Uh, I wanted to know if you were positive people and if you seemed to love the Lord and want to be at church. Uh, I wanted to know if all the congregation would be sitting there like this the whole time where we're supposed to be worshiping uh, with your awesome worship leader. Uh, Again, I didn't tell Philip I had a checklist. I don't have a checklist. I'm just playing. But I was very encouraged. I told my wife, she said, well, how's the church? And I said, man, everybody's just really positive and uh, they're really happy to be there, which is a good thing. some sadly some churches are filled with people who don't seem to want to be there and i don't know how that's possible with jesus but uh uh i'm just very encouraged that god has him here and uh just can't wait to hear what's going on uh he calls me and he says man god's doing this pray for this person they just got saved and and they joined the church or you know man i'm I'm starting this and, and the people are real excited about it pray about it and i love those calls i love to hear those things uh because as we've grown together now we are both in ministry, Philip as a pastor and me as a deacon and a, and a, and a Sunday school teacher and a lot of other things. But uh, now the conversation has gone less about us and what's going on in our lives, though we still talk about that, to more about what God's doing in our lives and the people we're in contact with. Uh, I ask him to pray for these men that I disciple and this guy's going through this, and, and uh, I, I appreciate you praying for him. Or I'm teaching First Samuel, and let me tell you what I learned from that. So... Uh, Thank you again for letting me come. Katie and uh, Charles, uh, Katie and White, excuse me, had a great time. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful that Philip's here. Uh, I, hope, I hope you feel the same way. Uh, and I just hope God uses him here for as many years as he sees fit uh, to, to do whatever he's supposed to do. But I want you to know that Philip's not going to stop expecting you to make disciples. And it's real simple. It's because it's what we're commanded to do. It's not a suggestion. It's not a if you want to. Understand that if you claim Christ and you want to be a part of his bride, the church, you have expectations. It's not about your salvation. You were saved by the grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. That was taken care of. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about now you're a part of the church and there are expectations. And one of those is that you make disciples. Another is that you pray for your pastor and his family as he prays for you. Another is that you make people feel welcome. And thank you. You did a great job at that. Another is that you study your word. 
you have a great teacher, and he's going to teach you the word, just like he taught me all those years ago. But he's not the end-all, be-all. If he leaves tomorrow uh, on a jet plane, I don't know. <laughs> uh, if, if, he, uh, if the Lord took him from this church, you would still be expected to know his word and to serve him. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen tomorrow, but understand that those expectations are still there because you claim to be a Christian. And I'll leave you with this. I told you that in Philippians 3 was the first verse I learned with Philip, to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, uh, and so on and so forth. That was the first verse I learned. That is not my favorite verse. My favorite verse comes from Philippians 2, which you just read. Philippians 2.10, that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Christ is Lord. Uh, the more I study that verse, the more it's, it's, it's a very serious verse to me because if you, don't, if you didn't hear anything I say, understand this. You're either going to bow because you want to or you're going to be made to bow. You will either hit your knees and be so grateful to Christ your Savior and excited to bow before your Lord and King or you will be made to bow whether you want to or not. But it says every tongue will confess Jesus one way or another. So knowing that serious verse and knowing the implications of that verse, our goal should be that we want everyone to bow with us willingly and gladly and happily. And if that means sharing the gospel with them, if that means being honest with them and truthful with them about God and where they stand with God as a sinner, if that means taking them and teaching them the Bible so they can run as far away from that horrible sin nature as possible, whatever that means, you play a part in that. Philip discipled me. Now I'm making disciples. Our goal in that, our number one goal, is that people get saved. And they're not made to bow before God. They bow willingly. Uh, Past that point, we want them to know the Lord and know the power of his resurrection and know what a joy it is to have Christian brothers and to have a church family. But it starts at that point of them understanding that they need to bow to Christ willingly. Uh, So, again, I'm so encouraged to meet you guys and to get to be with you. I look forward to being with you again whenever that comes. Uh, But uh, right now, I know that Philip's excited to be here and you guys are excited, and that makes me happy. So thank you from his brother's perspective. Thank you for welcoming him, and uh, I can't wait to hear what the Lord does through this church. So the question I forgot to ask, and I won't make you answer it, I'll just (laughs) say a little bit about it is that Michael's vocation is he's a teacher or a librarian at a public school. And um, he also uses that to build relationships with coworkers, with children, to make sure those children feel loved and uh, hear about Jesus in, the, in a way that will allow him to keep his job. And, uh, and so there's, there's the real-life aspects of discipleship also outside of the church setting, outside of friends.